Welcome back to the Hand to Shoulder podcast. Last week, we had the pleasure of interviewing Teresa Perry. She is a 2012 graduate from University of Wisconsin, La Crosse, with a Master of Science degree in Occupational Therapy and a Bachelor of Science in Psychology. Teresa completed the IAOM, United States COMT, tract of the Upper Quadrant in 2015 and Certified Hand Therapy Certification in 2017. Teresa is a practicing therapist and a co-manager at the Hand to Shoulder Center of Wisconsin in Appleton with Steve and myself. She specializes in both conservative and post-operative treatment of orthopedic conditions of the upper extremity. We are going to focus on structures and the role of the TFCC today, variations of splinting, and a few treatment techniques for conservative management and post-operative care. We hope you can take away different concepts of managing the ulnar side of the wrist based on mechanism of injury and current concepts and in research, including proprioceptive treatment. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a five-star rating so we can keep changing the world one hand to shoulder at a time. Welcome back. Cassie and Steve here from the Hand to Shoulder Center. Today we have Teresa Perry, OTR, CHT, COMT, joining us to talk about the TFCC. Thank you for joining us today. Do you want to just start with introducing yourself and a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, thanks to both Cassie and Steve for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited about this venture for you both, and uh, I feel honored to be asked to, to be part of it. So my background starts off as a uh, attending school locally here in Wisconsin at UW-La Crosse. I did both my undergrad and graduate uh, studies there and ended up in some field work placements with hand therapy as a strong component. And that's really where my interest was, was sparked and in this area. And then through um, some different continuing ed experiences, I got in connection with this clinic and now I just feel so grateful to be to be part of it. So I split my time between some administrative roles and then as a treating therapist and I treat um, a, a combination of proximal and, and distal issues, but have really come to enjoy treating and talking about the wrist. So I've had some opportunities to get into more of a teaching role and I have um, become a faculty member with the International Academy of Orthopedic Medicine, their hand and upper and excuse me, upper extremity track, and have had the opportunity to teach at some uh, local conferences and through MedBridge. So it's just become an area of, of interest for me personally because I think it's a challenging population within the clinic that we all have patients who have persistent pain, especially on that ulnar side, and to be able to really dig in and feel empowered as to how to best treat that, it's just a good feeling. So I hope that people can take away some, some pieces from what we're able to talk about today. Yeah, and for those of you that do not know what TFCC stands for, it's for Triangular Fibrocartilage Complex. And Teresa, let's talk about what makes up the TFCC. I remember doing my first field work um, and my clinical instructor just told me, hey, you know the meniscus of the the knee there's a meniscus of the wrist and it's kind of there to to distribute weight evenly throughout the forearm so you don't have pain basically when i pick something with my palm up or i push myself up with my wrist extended and i was like oh easy but there is a lot more to the tfcc could you speak to what it's comprised of <clears throat> yeah definitely and i think that your experience is not unique in that that we we often thought about the TFCC as just this one static structure, but it is aptly named in terms of, of, in terms of having that word complex at the end. It's complex. It has a lot of different structures that are all um, working together dynamically and statically. So a couple of the big components um, that we have to consider are the radial ulnar ligaments. So we have two sets. We have a superficial set and a deep set. Superficially, they attach to the ulnar styloid. The deep set attaches to the ulnar fovea. And I know it's kind of hard to conceptualize and talk about the TFCC from an anatomy standpoint in a non-visual medium, but if we can just appreciate that there are many different structures at play. So radial ulnar ligaments, big piece there. 
The other component is the articular disc, and that speaks to more what you were just talking about, Steve, with the load-bearing piece, its ability to sustain load and make that connection on the ulnar side between the carpus and the distal radial, radius and ulna. And then we have some more accessory components like the ulnar triquetral and uh, ulnar lunate ligament, where there are more vertical structures that provide um, support to that ulnar side. And then we have the ECU, extensor carpi ulnaris, and its subsheath, which being a non-ligamentous structure sort of seems like it's this outlier in the TFCC, but we've learned so much more about how it is able to provide dynamic support to these structures and how injury to the TFCC leads to issues at ECU and vice versa. So it's an important thing to still note as a component. Yeah, so, so the role of the TFCC, force distribution, and something else I'm missing you just said. Yeah, so, so the force distribution or our ability to sustain load, no doubt. On top of that, probably just more from an obvious standpoint, is stability. We have those ligamentous structures that are connecting bone to bone, keeping us stable. Particularly important for this bony congruency because we have this wide sigmoid notch of the radius and then a much smaller ulnar head which allows for a lot of mobility on that ulnar side, but then requires stability from something other than the bone. So we need that ligamentous support to provide stability on the ulnar side. And it also it has a role with controlling forearm rotation. So we know that when we pronate and supinate, the radius has to roll and slide over the ulnar head. So in a joint that doesn't have a lot of interlocking bony tightness, that has to be controlled by something else. So that's really a big part of what the radial ulnar ligaments do is, is uh, control that radius as it rolls over the ulna. And we know that forearm rotation is also impacted by the interosseous membrane and the proximal radial ulnar joint proximally. So we have stability, we have loading, controlling forearm rotation, and then sort of a newer component in the last 10 years or so, we're learning more and more about the sensory aspect of the ligaments of the wrist. And the ligaments of the TFCC are no different in that they have a sensory role in terms of being able to perceive motion, movement, positions of the wrist, and providing that information to the brain so that we can be smooth with our movements. So, and that has an implication, you know, both on impacting stability, but impacting our ability to effectively interact with our world because we feel more clumsy when that feedback loop gets disruptive in the case of an injury. Listening to you speak about it takes me back to, you know, the first course I went on the wrist and you're learning about all the structures, the responsibility of the TFCC, because I think, especially, I don't want to speak for Cassie, but early in my career, it was, you'd see a script come across, you'd say, it's a TFCC injury or ulnar side of wrist pain. And maybe I had two, maybe three tests at best that I knew, and they weren't specific weeding out any structures. And the treatment was you put them in a who and pain-free wrist range of motion. Maybe you're doing some modalities and it was really hard to get the patient buy-in, but it's interesting hearing about the different structures because I think there's probably many therapists out there that would just do similar to what I was taught, pain-free range of motion. You put them in a splint and you just kind of cross your fingers and hope the pain goes away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for me, this bring, brings back memories from my earlier years of practicing, like Steve noted. Uh, so I, I completed my COMT with Teresa in 2015 through the International Academy of Orthopedic Medicine. And you really learn the fine details of structures like the TFCC and Previous to that, I was very naive thinking that the structure was more like cube-like or box-like and kind of moved with the distal ulna and the wrist as one unit and not necessarily as a unit on its own. So it was a, a big eye-opener for me to, to learn the different structures uh, when you pull on something volarly, what happens mechanically, dorsally, and vice versa. So uh, since then, I've learned different splinting techniques and really have changed my practice on uh, the mechanics of that structure alone.
Yeah, and it's an exciting time for, for treatment in this area because, like I said, the, the literature is just exploding in terms of the role of proprioceptive training and how impactful that can be and how we can be much more selective with splinting and choosing splints that don't necessarily immobilize the wrist. So it still encourages function. It more just supports the wrist. And by being able to first appreciate that there are so many different structures at play and then feeling confident in your ability to, to assess what structure is at play. And again, that's a different topic. We could spend a whole podcast just talking about wrist assessment and the tests that can be utilized. But stay tuned. We, uh, <laughs> it's, it's true. It's its own, own animal. But then really feeling empowered by that to be more sophisticated with how we tackle these, these people from a more um, comprehensive standpoint um, and more holistic that we're addressing the, the whole kinetic chain also. What would the older, what does the older literature say? I mean, you know, we're commenting on especially new stuff, proprioception, but what does the old literature say about TFCC, like early consideration for treatment? Well, I think that early on there was just more of a push for surgical intervention and a lot of immobilization so that would and still that has a role certainly that your very unstable wrist that has a, a tfcc tear especially if those deep ligaments are disrupted they may need to be casted for four weeks and see how things go for, for the, from that treatment style but i think that the transition has been about less immobilization more um, targeted supporting and early mobilization so that we don't lose that proprioceptive feedback loop that we just started talking about so that um, we're encouraging function earlier. And you talked about buy-in, Steve. It's hard to get someone to commit to being casted in a long-arm cast in supination for four weeks. You know, that's very functionally limiting. And we have all experienced the stiffness and, and pain that that then leads to afterward. Even if you have a stable wrist, you still have a lot of work on your hands. So I would say that's more the overall push is, you know, a trend away from immobilization or as surgical intervention as a first line, more towards conservative treatment first, early mobilization. Yeah, I think we're seeing that movement across all types of diagnoses with, you know, it was a lot more immobilization to now, like, how can we help keep the patient more functional? Mm -hmm. uh, we just keep growing in the profession with that. Um, you know, we're talking about the injuries of the TFCC structures, what are the most common mechanism of injury? Yeah, good question. And I think that um, probably what we're all most familiar seeing in the clinic are injuries that are a result of falls. So falling and catching yourself um, on your wrist, it's usually in an extended and pronated position. And this is often in conjunction with a dysoradius fracture. So how many of our dysoradius fractures will also have a ulnar styloid or ulnar base fracture that occurs in conjunction with it. I mean, it's, it happens all the time. And we talked briefly about how those radial ulnar ligaments attach to both the ulnar styloid superficially and the ulnar fovea for the deep set. So you almost have to assume that you've had some damage to the TFCC with a dysoradius fracture that has a uh, ulnar styloid fracture with it. However, when I was preparing for my last, I, I taught an ulnar wrist pain course recently, and the, the lit search I did, I found three articles. There were two systematic reviews, one meta-analysis, all within the last two years. And the total, it would be thousands of patients that were evaluated long-term. So this is one year follow-up after a distal radius fracture with an ulnar styloid fracture or an ulnar base fracture. So the base of the ulnar styloid was fractured instead of the styloid itself. And what they found that after a year, there's no difference. So whether or not you have an ulnar component to your distal radius fracture, people function the same. So that's in terms of pain, in terms of range of motion, in terms of grip strength, um, people function well. So that's something to be aware of as a therapist, that we're not planting the seed of, you know, you may have issues on this side of the wrist because you also had a little fracture on, on that ulna bone. You know, our bodies very much have the capability of, of healing and, and scarring back in. So 
while it happens with dysorrhagus fractures, it's not a given. So we want to not make assumptions about whether that will occur or not. You can certainly still fall, not have a fracture and damage the TFCC as well. Those are usually ones that are progressive in nature where you fall. Maybe it doesn't bother you initially, but as you start increasing your activity level, it progresses and you have an increase in pain. Um, apart from falls, I found that it's typically something to do with hypersupination. So in the event of a construction worker or a weekend warrior doing a home project that they're using a drill and something slips and now they've all of a sudden gone into that hypersupination type of position, uh, something, something's got to give. So we just talked about how those radial ulnar ligaments control the radius as it spins over the ulna. So if you go excessively in one direction, what's going to likely give or be overstretched or irritated in some regard is going to be that radial ulnar ligament and will require some, some support. So hypersupination falls, um, or it can be more from repetitive movement. So, you know, we haven't really talked about the idea of ulnar variance, but if someone's in pronation, we know that their tendency is to be more ulnar positive in a pronated position. Gripping increases um, ulnar positivity. So think about how many things you do, palm down, squeezing, you know, pushing a grocery cart, mowing the lawn. And then if you have someone that has to do loading repetitively, how that could be more of a degenerative tear of the TSCC versus the traumatic instances that we just talked about. Yeah. I'm glad too you you spoke to how a lot of times with distal radius fractures maybe there's a component of an ulnar styloid fracture an ulnar base fracture um, and I can't tell you how many times early in my career I made that mistake of getting hung up on the imaging and then I got the patient fixated on the imaging and then just anticipating they're going to have ulnar side of wrist pain because I feel like most of the times I see the distal radius fracture with at least an ulnar styloid fracture they're usually not repaired right and could you speak to how you you did a little bit, but about like what encouraging therapists, how to get the buy-in from the patient if they're really fixated on that x-ray. Yeah. And I think too, we've seen, like how you said that, um, the surgeons don't fix them. So you can use, you can use that. We know that patients tend to be soothed by surgeon's words <laughs> more so than their, their therapists sometimes early when you haven't necessarily established that rapport. So, you know, this is something that your surgeon didn't deem necessary to fix because we rely on your body's ability to heal. So there's no indication that you're going to have any long-term issues with that small fracture on that other side. Things are going to scar in. But I think if you can um, effectively reduce or treat the, if they are experiencing any pain, that's your buy-in, you know, and, and we can talk about that more when we get into treatment, that that's really how you convince someone to get on board is when you can impact their pain within a session by choosing, you know, what type of intervention is going to meet their needs the best. Yeah, I just to piggyback off of that, I found that patients tend to perseverate on that ulnar-sided pain more than the radial side, even though that was the culprit of the the injury. And usually when they leave the clinic, that is the exit review statement that I still have that ulnar sided wrist pain. And when is that going to go away? They just need that validation that yes, this will improve. And sometimes, like you said, it is hard to get that buy-in. And at the same time, I think that, you know, I've heard therapists tell patients, you know, pain on that side of the wrist is normal after a fracture. You know, pain is not Guilty. normal. Pain Guilty. Is, and, and I don't think you're alone. But pain isn't normal. It's common. It's common to have ulnar-sided wrist pain after a dysorrhagus fracture, but it's not normal. So chances are you could be doing a little bit more digging to see how you can impact that ulnar-sided wrist pain, treat it versus just giving, because it's hard, it's hard to swallow. Like it'll just get better over time. Mm -hmm. Chances are it will, but in therapy, you very likely will be able to expedite that improvement if you are able to identify what's involved and then treat it. True. So uh, just kind of going back to repetitive motion as an injury to the TFCC, I just read a recent lit review that kind of explained uh, wrist 
repetitive wrist motion in athletes, specifically using some type of device such as like a tennis racket or a hockey stick or anything that you would have to repetitively grip and deviate ownerly, it showed that they would have more uh, repetitious tethering of that TFCC, uh, commonly referred to as hockey wrist. In your clinical experience, have you treated anyone like this or have you uh, been able to differ the uh, the variances between like the fall uh, TFCC injury versus a repetitive motion, um, particularly in athletes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the athletic population is kind of unique in itself in terms of the amount of load they are asking their joints to sustain um, compared to the average person. So, you know, we kind of have to treat this almost in just two different categories, even taking athletes off the table in terms of traumatic versus repetitive injury. So athletes certainly have traumatic injuries. Athletes have repetitive injuries. Um, But if we think about how we need to address them, we're going to be thinking more about for the repetitive population, um, you know, how has the, the rest of their body contributed to that wrist issue? You know, in, in someone, and this, we're, we're going to go away from the athletic population for just a second. I had a musician that I was treating this past summer who was a violinist and was in a pronated position all the time. So it was her bowing hand and then was frequently ulnarly and radially deviating. So she had much more uh, cumulative trauma to that TFCC due to the repetitive nature of her, of her uh, injury. But what we found after we got things under control at her wrist was that we could look proximally and see that because she was so weak with her shoulder and her scapular stabilizers, when we addressed that issue, she could use the rest of her arm to facilitate some of that motion instead of it all being about the wrist. So in a repetitive population, after you get the wrist under control, which we'll talk about, we want to still address the rest of the picture. You know, how did they get there? What was, is there something that's either modifiable to the activity that they have to do, or is there something else going on? Do they have, you know, stiffness or limitations or weaknesses proximally? Are they not moving well through the rest of their body? So kind of two, two phases when you're looking at something from a, a repetitive side versus the traumatic side, it's no indication that something was going wrong with their activity or their mechanics. You know, they had a fall, something got damaged. So I think for both populations, both a, an athlete or, or a non-athlete, your first line of defense is usually some type of norphosis. And there are a lot of different options um, that we can that we can talk about. And then really thinking about early proprioception utilization. So we talked about how extensor corporeal nearest is a dynamic stabilizer of the TFCC, as well as a pronator quadratus. So we know that the pronator quadratus is the only muscle that really just squeezes distal radius and ulna together. So for both populations being able to lean on those muscles early for proprioceptive help in combination with whatever type of splint that you choose. Then based on your knowledge of what structure is involved, so typically in the falls population, I would say that in my experience anyway, people usually injure their deep volar radial ulnar ligament because they fall pronated. So then you have stress to that volar aspect of the deep set. So then we want to be educating them on how to treat or how to complete more of their activities, especially with loading and supination to offload that volar deep ligament, put more tension on the dorsal deep so that they can still interact and function and and do what they need to do, but offload that healing or or, uh, overstretched ligament. So that's a general overview, which kind of got all over the place, but... um, For athletes, it's more that you're just going to be looking at loading needs and um, how you can modify that in a safe position where they're also supported with the splint. So if we branch off the repetitive motion like athletic group versus a conservative management of someone who is like someone like your musician patient, how would you 
splint each one and how would that, what are different splinting options for each category? And I think too, this is a, a good, a good way to think about it rather than population specific. It's more about what you find in your exam that if this is someone who has a lot of laxity, you know, tons of movement occurring between the radius and ulna, they're going to need a more rigid orthosis versus the other end of the spectrum is going to be something more simple like um, taping. So if we just kind of talk through that spectrum a little bit, really rigidly, that would be what we talked about in the beginning in terms of casting. Like they see the doctor, lots of instability, but don't necessarily meet the criteria for, for surgery. They just may be casted, hoping that they stiffen up. Hopefully, they give us the opportunity to, to evaluate that patient and we can set them up with something that is really supportive. I like to stay away from who options just because, again, they cross the wrist, they limit function. The immobility to the wrist isn't always um, super beneficial for the TFCC unless you have a lot of ulnar triquetral and ulnar lunate ligament involvement because that really gets affected by radial ulnar deviation. But it's a relatively easy position to avoid if you tell someone to try not to go back and forth um, side to side, maybe would be a better way to describe it, but you can still move in a forward and back position. And just to comment on our listeners, those of you who don't see hands regularly, a who is a wrist hand orthotic. And that's not something that I was familiar with until I came to the hand center here. We call it a wrist cock up or just a standard wrist based with a radial bar splint. So just uh, uh, FYI for those of you listening. RL3906. <laughs> yeah, and L codes. Did you really? You went all, by L codes? We went by L codes. Oh man, I don't all know. All codes. I don't know. Any that's one. the only one I remember. That's so, that's so funny. The most common anyway. Yeah. So then we have casting and who's as our really rigid splinting options. Our other rigid splinting options that don't cross the wrist would be something like a custom DRUJ cuff. So if you use a, a, a thin custom splint material, I mean, typically we would use something like an Orfit or an Aquaplast where you can really rigidly um, do a circumferential mold of the distal radius and ulna trying to deeply mold between the radius and ulna also. You can use like silicone padding to help depress the ulnar head if that's the issue that you're seeing, and then some rigid D-ring straps. So you can kind of just get this picture of circumferential pressure squeezing down with, with a D-ring. So a lot of support. And what kind of position would you put them in when you're strapping the actual D-ring? Would you supinate them? So depending on the structure you're protecting. So if it's the deep bowler ligament I want to protect, absolutely. I'm going to put them in supination, full tension when we're in a supinated position so that when they pronate, they're going to feel that support to their ulnar head and we're going to be supporting that ligament. Um, and that's why we would be supporting them in doing their activities in that supinated position too. So that's a great clarification. Still moving then kind of down the intensity spectrum of splinting, we have a ton of prefab options that have gotten better and better. We've got things like the, the wrist widget. There's a Healy Weber product called the Ulnar Compression Squeeze Wrap. Um, we have the Bullseye. And I know that there are more out there. This is not to advocate for any specific product, but it's just to try and um, encourage you to play with what works. This is one thing that I feel like I get burned on where I, I start to develop a preference and then, you know, a patient surprises me and they just do better with a different one. So stay open-minded to your splinting options. It's not cookie cutter. It's not one size fits all. And again, if we continue to move down that spectrum, you can look at taping. You can look at stabilization tape, kinesio tape. I had a gentleman where his laxity was subtle enough that we could tighten his watch if he was able to just put it on in the right position. So again, just feel like you have the freedom to be creative, but you have to get buy-in with this. Even though it's not as cumbersome as long arm splinting or a who like we just talked about, people don't like to wear stuff if it doesn't help them. So you wanna be able to demonstrate how this is supporting them. So you can do that by, um, if grip strengthening, or gripping is their most provocative maneuver. Have them grip, try the splint, 
grip again. If it's less painful or they're able to generate more power, you know that you're on the right track with that type of splint. And those are the types of things that generate that buy-in from the patient. Or you can do it with weight pairing. You can do it with whatever their big concern is. So it's really more about going off of what you're feeling in terms of laxity that's going to dictate the type of orthosis that you pick versus um, necessarily even what type of demands they have. You know, even an athlete, yeah. it might, they just may need, only need that taping. Versus the mechanism is more the structures involved, not necessarily what caused the injury. Yeah, and what, what you feel like you can make an impact with in a session. What can you change? And I always feel like when I my go-to splint, like you were saying, that comfort zone of which one you feel has given your patient, the patients, I should say, the, the best option. I always feel like that next person that walks through the door is in between sizes. So I'm always finding myself making some sort of custom adjustment to it just to get that right fit. So don't be afraid to do some modifications to, to help that ease of feeling and comfort for that patient. And just adding to your guys' conversation about the splinting here, I personally find myself usually going between two. I usually go between the Healy Weber owner squeeze and the wrist widget. That's just what's worked best for me. But listening to you two speak about this, I recognize that I could do a better job of maybe being more open to other options. That's going to help my patients to be more functional in their daily activities. Um, I'd like to transition gears here a little bit though, Teresa, and talk about lesions of the TFCC. Let's talk about traumatic versus degenerative lesions. Is there anything in the literature, Teresa, that you've come across when you're prepping for your courses, you're teaching about differences of outcome if it was traumatic or degenerative? No, I think that's that's a, a good question. I don't know that I've seen any literature that lays it out that specifically. From what I know about degenerative lesions and what can even happen um, congenitally, some people just have a really thin particular disc. It's not very robust, so you, you usually see a a correlation relative to the length of their ulna. So someone who is very ulnar minus has a thicker disc. Someone who is more ulnar neutral or ulnar plus, they've obviously got a thinner disc because there's not as much room for it. So you can develop a hole in that disc um, if your ulna tends to be longer and it's constantly getting poke, it's poking into that articular disc. Some people are just born with a congenital hole in their disc. So this can be those people that you're talking with. Um, they say, my wrist has always clicked. It's not painful. It just, I've always had a, a kind of a little bit of a snap in there when I've rotated. Or they're coming to you and saying, I feel like I have a snap in my wrist. I feel like it's helpful to at least have them try it on the other side because half the time it seems like that one does too. It's just that they're so much more aware of that side now that it's injured that it sort of provokes some anxiety like, click equals problem type of thing. So in terms of literature to say, if some people do better or worse, I've not, I've not seen that. I think that as with most injuries, the sooner you're able to get to something, the better people do overall. So it's more an issue of, you know, acuity and chronicity versus whether it was traumatic or degenerative in nature. But again, I would go back to that scale of laxity and instability, that that's probably your bigger okay. indicator of what their outcome is going to be. Yeah, I, that's a great transition because I want to talk about the other therapists out there. You get that script, ulnar-sided pain, you do some provocative testing, some special testing, and you get something. We won't get structure-specific, but we know something in the TFCC. We're going to treat them conservatively. How long would you treat them conservatively before you were referred to a physician and maybe with a surgical intervention? Then yeah. we'll get into the surgeries. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's a, a recent article that just, I believe it was in 2018, um, from the Journal of Wrist Surgery that actually advocates for six months of conservative care before pursuing surgery. Now, we all know that there are a lot of factors that go into that. You know, what are these, what's this person's demands? How, how debilitating is it? You know, have you made any change in their, in their status in the, you know, in recent weeks in therapy? But I think too, we can 
we can tell if we're trending in the right direction in that time versus I would say if you're having three or four months, um, because a lot of these people, it's not like your hands are on them constantly in the session. So you're, you're kind of checking in with them every couple of weeks versus seeing them twice a week for 12 weeks. So um, you should know if you're trending in the right direction and if you're heading towards a physician referral. Also, again, appreciating where they fall on that spectrum of laxity or instability. Are they really having a lot of mo mobility between the radius and ulna? Is it clunking? or is it more subtle and only with loading? You know, those people are gonna probably respond well to conservative treatment. Okay. And what about for the patients that end up having to see a hand surgeon and they do have to, you know, have to have surgical intervention? Are there some common procedures that are completed more than others? Sure. Yeah, so in terms of what's, what's done surgically, again, we kind of have this spectrum that on the low intervention side, we have a debridement when there's usually that some kind of central perforation and they're restoring the trampoline effect. So that articular disc to, re to restore the capability of that wrist to sustain load a little bit more efficiently. And then you can progress into a true repair. And if that repair also warrants shortening of the ulna in some capacity. So again, starting at the lesser end, you would have what's referred to most commonly as a wafer procedure. And from my reading of surgical reports and of articles describing this, it's typically if you need a three millimeter height taken down or less, that that points you in the wafer direction. If you need more height reduced, that's when they do an ulnar osteotomy where they'll break the ulna mid shaft, take some bone out and plate it, and then also repair the TFCC. So big procedure, you know, that's a lot to go through. But mechanically, you can see how it makes sense that if you're not taking away the mechanism that injured the TFCC with addressing the ulnar variance issue, what's to say it's not going to come right back even if, if it's repaired. So obviously, recovery and what you do in terms of rehab is dictated in a lot of ways by what's done surgically. Does that affect the splinting that we're making for the patient positions? I mean, obviously you mentioned earlier, you know, conservatively putting somebody in a who, but long arm versus a monster, supinated versus pronated, neutral, the forearm. Yeah. A lot of that will be dictated by the surgical procedure. So typically if it's a debridement, you're not going to be limiting forearm rotation completely. So you're not really looking at a, a monster or a long arm. You're usually looking at just a, wrist hand orthosis, and then hopefully pretty quickly reducing to more of just a DRUJ support. So it allows for more wrist movement, more engagement with their functional activities um, versus for someone with a repair, you are trying to have some time go by where you're not allowing forearm rotation. So you're limiting the radius from rolling over the ulna, trying to fully allow those um, ligaments to heal. Most of the time, and I think it's more from a comfort perspective really than a mechanical perspective, is that surgeons will opt for keeping them in neutral. Because it's hard to stay in one form position or another for a sustained amount of time. If there were one position that were more common, it would usually be slightly supinated. Because again, we are less ulnar positive when we're in supination you're potentially offloading that deep polar ligament, which is commonly injured. So probably the supinated long arm or monster. And I don't think you would find many surgeons who really have strong feelings between those two, you know, that they, if they effectively immobilize forearm rotation, they're going to get the job done. But what I like about how protocols have started to evolve is that instead of then reducing to a wrist hand orthosis, once they're cleared for forearm rotation, we're looking more at the DRUJ cuffs or um, other types of specific DRUJ supports so that we can restore wrist range of motion pretty quickly um, while still supporting the DRUJ. So with this kind of recovery, uh, when it comes to 
post-op, we often see limitations into supination or even into pronation for that matter as well. So we're having to treat the PRUJ, proximal radial joint as well, with joint mobilizations, um, just that neuromuscular re-education of helping glide that radial head into supination. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that and how, where do you start when it comes to addressing mobilizations during the healing process? Yeah. I think that's that's a, a great point that that's probably one of the biggest frustrations, especially, you know, some some surgical protocols will have you wait on forearm rotation till like eight weeks. So, you know, you expect some stiffness and then you really have to go back to trying to understand where this range of motion limit is stemming from. Is it the PREJ? Is it still an alignment issue with the DREJ? So with the PREJ, we are looking at stiffness issues. At the DRUJ, it's an alignment issue most of the time. So if you, again, it can envision the sigmoid notch and the ulnar head. If that ulnar head is displaced slightly volarly or slightly dorsally, how that's going to impact the radius's ability to roll over it and accomplish that form rotation. So if you can have the patient supinate on their own. If it's painful or limited, you restore alignment at the DREJ and have them re uh, repeat it. And now they can go further or it's less painful. You know that at least some part, part of it is still an alignment issue at the DREJ. So again, a nice, easy, quick way to help make sure that you're on the right path in terms of what you're tackling. The PRUJ, you're really just looking at joint-specific testing and figuring out which direction it needs to be mobilized. But it's one of those things that, you know, you see a lot of people who get out the hammer or um, get out other aggressive methods of stretching without being critical about, what am I stretching? What muscles cross the forearm that would be limiting motion? you can't really come up with any. So it's more so that you're probably just overstraining those freshly repaired radial ulnar ligaments, setting them up for potential instability again, versus being really critical about where's my limit coming from. We also know that the interosseous membrane can be a culprit, but that's more of a ruling out type of diagnosis. If you're positive, the DREJ is in good shape, good alignment, your PREJ is moving like a champ. The only thing that's left is really your interosseous membrane. On top of that, I guess I would say also neuromuscular re-ed, that that can be an issue too, that they've just deeply latched onto some compensation patterns, um, utilizing their shoulder or something else. So as long as you address that component also, all that's left is the interosseous membrane. And that unfortunately, kind of a tough pill to swallow for people because you're, uh, you're not really going to do a whole lot with that. It's more an education piece that what you have for range of motion is probably what you're going to have. If we aggressively stretch, it could be damaging to these ligaments. Makes sense. So that kind of feeds into, so when we talk neuromuscular re-education, we're usually completing some form of proprioceptive training prior to the, the time frame that the protocol allows us to strengthen. So I found an interesting article that demonstrates movement patterns and loss of proprioceptive feedback with a TFCC tear. So not necessarily a repair, just a tear in general. This was completed in 2018 and was published in the Journal of Hand Therapy, or I'm sorry, Hand Surgery. Uh, they had 48 subjects split in half, 24 TFCC tears and 24 healthy wrists. And they specially created a sensor me that measured that wrist proprioception in three different axes of movement. And they found that TFCC injuries, significant greater differences between target and subject re reproduced angles compared to the contralateral side, which thus indicates that deep TFCC fiber detachment may lead to decreased wrist proprioceptors at 60 and 40 degrees of forearm rotation. And coincidentally enough, that's kind of where we splint at. So if we're going to splint slightly supinated, maybe we're at that 40 degree angle or slightly pronated. So where we're going with this is neuromuscular re-ed, we usually have to retrain that 
proprioceptive feedback with a tear or a repair for that matter. So do you want, just want to talk a little bit on different um, styles of neuromuscular re-ed uh, with, uh, we already kind of spoke about marble in a cup or wiffle ball with a marble. Or when yeah. you're starting that. I guess, sure. you know, when, when would you be starting that in the Yeah, and I think, to? again, trying to think about this in two different populations, either conservatively, like you said, with a tear or then a repair um, post-op. But I think sort of separating those two pieces into proprioception and then neuromuscular re-ed, that when we're thinking about proprioception, and I think this is an important conversation to have with your patient, because proprioceptive activities are also are sometimes kind of bizarre. They don't necessarily understand why they're being asked to twirl a marble in a cup, for example. So helping them understand that, yes, your ligament is responsible for keeping these two bones together, but it's also responsible for communicating to your brain and giving it information about how your body needs to respond based on your activity. And so this proprioceptive activity that I'm asking you to do is trying to restore that feedback because if you can envision that your ligament has been overstretched or slightly torn, how that affects the receptors within that ligament um, and then no longer gives as effective of information. So proprioception, you can start early because it's you can do it without a lot of loading. So it's safe to start early. So we talked about the pronator quadratus isometrics, using a marble in a cup, um, you can, again, utilize things like a Frisbee or a Tupperware container where you're trying to do more large-scale motions. But again, it's about being critical with what form position you're having them do it in so that we're still being protective of the ligaments that we're um, trying not to stress. Neuromuscular re I think, is more a little bit higher level because we're trying to ensure that they're using the correct musculature to accomplish the movements we're asking them to do. So in terms of forearm rotation, making sure that we're inhibiting any compensatory movements coming from the shoulder and that they're utilizing their distal musculature and that we're encouraging movement at that PRUJ, having the radial head go in the direction we want it to um, so that nothing else is compensating. And now would be a good time to do a shameless plug for the hand to shoulder Instagram account. If you guys are looking for ideas, shameless plug there. There is a wrist proprioception uh, exercise video on there. Um, I think there's about five or six exercises on that. Should be a quick under a minute on there for you guys if you need ideas. Um, and we do need to get wrapping up. Unfortunately, all three of us have to get back to patient care here. Um, but Teresa, are there any, what takeaways would you want the listeners, therapists to take away from this podcast and then is there any kinetic chain concepts? I know that's kind of a big question to ask at the end mm -hmm. here, but is there anything you would just want to work on in addition to the forearm limitations, the wrist, all that? Sure. I think that overarching concepts are to appreciate that the TFCC is made up of specific structures that when you're dealing with the TFCC issue, you want to try and identify the pain generator or the, the, source of the problem instead of treating it as a just one big thing um, knowing how it contributes to limits in forearm rotation and that if you're being aggressive with motion you can be damaging to the tfcc uh, other components you know you talked about the kinetic chain i think it just speaks to the fact that we can't look at anything as far as an activity goes with just what's happening at the wrist, that we have to look at what's happening proximally, what's happening at the core, especially when you're talking about, you know, Cassie, you were mentioning athletic populations. But even with musicians, musicians sometimes have horrendous posture <laughs> yes, they do. Um, because they're often not athletes and don't have a lot of those things emphasized to them. So I would say you would treat it the same way that you would you know, a lateral elbow or um, some of those diagnoses that we're more familiar with going towards the shoulder and other proximal components. Um, it's just that usually you have to get pain under control and TFCC supported first before diving into other limits in the chain proximally. Love it. 
Great. Thank you so much, Teresa, for joining us today. You are just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the wrist. So we really appreciate your time being here today with us. So we like to end with uh, three questions uh, to our, uh, for our speakers, to our listeners. So uh, first off, can you tell us an embarrassing moment you had in your OT career that maybe we can learn from? Oh dear. Um, probably when I was a student in inpatient and you know, in, in inpatient, most patients have family members with them. And I made an assumption when I asked a gentleman about um, if his daughter wanted to go on a walk with us and it was his wife. <laughs> so that would be my embarrassment. My biggest embarrassment was uh, making assumptions about family connections. She, she didn't like me the whole rest of the, the time he was in the hospital. And I don't blame her. I shouldn't have assumed. <laughs> That is a good life skill. <laughs> All right. Uh, second one, what's a talent that you have that most of your coworkers don't know about? Well, Steve likes to put this out there for a lot of people to know for some reason, but I enjoy singing. I sing for some weddings, play some piano for some, some weddings. So it's a uh... soprano. <laughs> yep. It's something I like to do. I wouldn't necessarily call it it's nothing special, but it is something I do. So do you have some laxity in that pronated position of your wrist? <laughs> From that, yeah, you know, I, I do. I'm a, I'm a lax person in general, so that doesn't, that doesn't help matters. We might I have see. no ulnar wrist pain, though. We might see on the caseload in the future. Right. <laughs> and last, uh, if you had to do it all over again, what would you have chosen instead of OT? You know, I think I still would have landed somewhere in the healthcare field, even if it wasn't in therapy. I've always been fascinated by speech. I think speech is a cool um, field in itself. But honestly, I think that as long as you can find something that challenges you, that's something that I really enjoy is just being challenged and then, you know, taking it upon yourself to build skills to meet those those demands. So as long as it was a challenging field, I think I could I could be happy with it. Great. Uh, well, thank you again so much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate your time. Thanks and so much for having me. Thank you to our listeners. Um, stay tuned for the next podcast.